I'm Ron Warren, I'm a ruling elder here, and this morning we're going to be going through, or I'm going to be starting a five-part series on the solos of the Reformation, um, and I think it's good to periodically go through the very uh, foundations of our faith, and the solos of the Reformation are the biblical truths that reinforce the central teaching of the gospel. So let us go to the Lord in prayer first, that he might... Give us ears to hear. Dear Heavenly Father, we pray that you might give us ears to hear your word, for there is authority in it. We pray that you might give us ears to hear and uh, you might seal it in our hearts so that we might walk humbly before you, O Lord. We would pray, Father, that we would be convinced by Holy Scripture that our conscience is bound to the word of God, that we would not be conformed to this world, but we would be transformed by the renewing of our minds so that we might know what is pleasing to you. May the words of my lips and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. So the five solas, why the five solas? Well, these are the big old truths that came about from the Reformation. Why did we have a Reformation? Well, the solas are going to tell us why. It was one word, alone. That one word alone, that was the difference between heaven and hell. So, reading from the heart of the Reformation, which is a book by Ligonier's Ministries, it's an actual great, a good devotional on the five solas, and they write here, that the five solas of the Reformation are the core biblical truths that reinforce the central teaching of the gospel and all of scripture that only the Lord God Almighty saves us from sin, death, and Satan. Moreover, the five solas help us to understand how and why the Lord is the only savior. Thus, it is vital for all Christians to understand the five solas of the Reformation. In grasping them, we will know God better, love him more, appreciate all that was necessary for our salvation more deeply and be motivated to live in a manner that redounds to the God's glory. They give us the framework for seeing how the various parts of God's plan of redemption fits together and for seeing the coherent, unified message of the Bible in all of its beautiful diversity. What are the solas? Well, there's five of them. There's sola scriptura. And we're going to spend a lot of time on sola scriptura this morning because the very attack on Christianity is, is directed at sola scriptura. Scripture alone. If you can attack and destroy scripture, you can destroy our faith. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. What is the foundation of our faith? but not the scriptures. Then we have sola Christus, sola, that is Christ alone is the only savior. Actually, all of the solas point to Christ. And we will see that as we go through this study. Sola gratia, it's by grace alone that you are saved. Sola fide, faith alone, not by works, least any man should boast. Sola Dea Gloria, what is the chief end of man to glorify God and enjoy him forever? So, 
God alone is the Lord of the conscience. Martin Luther, in April 18, 1521, stood before the Diet of Worms, which was the parliamentary gathering or assembly of the statesmen of the day. And he was asked to recant his books. They laid all of his books on the table and said, Luther, will you not recant? And in those days, he was in the face of death. People were burned at the stake for being heretics. Luther says, give me more time <laughs> to think about it. Give me more time. So he, he thinks about it and he comes back the next day and he says that famous speech between, before the diet. He says, unless I am convinced by the testimony of the Holy Scriptures, by the evident or by evident reason, for I believe neither Pope nor councils alone, as it is clear that they have erred repeatedly and contradict themselves, I consider myself convicted by the testimony of the Holy Scriptures, which is my basis. My conscience is captive to the word of God. Thus, I cannot and will not recant because acting against one's conscience is neither safe nor stand. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Amen. What conviction in the face of death. What courage. The Westminster Confession of Faith, following the steps of Luther in their section on the faith, the liberty of conscience. They write, God alone is the Lord of the conscience and have left it free from the doctrines and commandments of men which are in anything contrary to his word or beside it in matters of faith or worship. Anything contrary to the word of God is not to be believed. See, this was the big difference between Rome and the reformers. The Rome, they believed that it was the church that gave birth to the scriptures. The reformers said, no, it's the scriptures that gave birth to the church. Who are you, Luther, to rightly interpret the word of God? If there is a scripture, who is the infallible interpretation of scripture? To Rome, it was the church. To the reformers, it was the analogy of faith. It is the scriptures that interpret the scriptures. That was the major difference between the Roman Catholic Church and the reformers. Private interpretation that doesn't mean you have the right to misinterpret the scriptures. You have a right and a duty to interpret the scriptures rightly. And we'll talk a little bit about that. In 2 Timothy 2.15, we read about private interpretation where Paul gives, says to Timothy, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. Scripture interprets scripture. It's so that we can get away from our personal opinions and get away from our eisegesis of reading into the scriptures, what we read in the New York Times this morning. What was the original intent of the author and the Holy Spirit as he spoke through the apostles and prophets? Well, you say, Ron, where do you get that from? Well, let's read what the Lord says about this. 
Jesus makes a distinction here in Matthew 15, verses 6 through 9. He says to the Pharisees, So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God, you hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines and the commandments of men. You see, it's the, it, it's the scriptures that are to bound our conscience, not the doctrines of men. We have a lot of traditions. Even in our church, we have the confession. I'm reading the confession to you today. But they're not the final authority. Can they err? Yes. Can the word of God err? Now, no. And we're going to talk about that. Now, what does that mean to us today? If Luther was standing before the Diet of Worms facing death and he said, I will not recant, what does that mean for us today? Well, Jesus said in, uh, in Matthew um, 10, verses 32 and 33, he says, so everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father in heaven. Luther could not deny Christ. And he chose death rather than to deny his Lord. And there's a movement in the church today that church membership really doesn't matter. What does it mean? The church doesn't save. That's true, the church doesn't save. But, say, but, but when we stand up here and we profess our faith in church member, we're professing our faith to our Lord. Uh, in Romans 10, Paul says, if you believe with your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. When you come up here, you are professing faith. You are not denying your Lord. Jesus said... You know, he said he's the head of the church, right? And the church is his body. And he says he loves the church. He gave himself for it. How can you not love what Christ loves? How can you have a heart for Christ and not love what Christ loves? Christ loves the church. The authority of Scripture. Now, getting down to that famous verse in in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, it says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in all righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. We also read in 2 Timothy 1, 20 and 21, Knowing this first all, that all, no prophecy of Scripture comes from one's private interpret own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Scripture. Scripture alone is the inherent sole authority of our faith and life. As men who spoke, through the Holy Spirit. Now, this was not some like mechanical dictation. You know, God didn't just take, possess these people and, and they're like, you know, manually dictating them. You know, no, no, no. <laughs> the violence of the will is not destroyed in God's sovereignty. You see, in in the Reformation, 
th there was no disagreement in the inerrancy of Scripture. Rome believed in the inerrancy of Scripture. They did not deny that. Where we disagreed was the sufficiency of Scripture. <laughs> you see, for Rome, it's not just Scripture as the final authority. They added to Scripture the traditions of the church as the final authority. In the Westminster Confession of Faith on the Holy Scripture, we read, all things in Scripture are alike plain unto themselves, nor alike clear unto all. Yet those things which are necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation are so clearly propound that open to some place of Scripture or another that not only the learned but the unlearned in the due use of the ordinary means may attain unto the sufficient understanding of them. There's much disagreement in the church today, my goodness. Look at just eschatology. Man, you got all-mill, you got post-mill, you got pre-mill, and within pre-mill you have pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib. You have historical pre uh, dispensationalism. Oh, my goodness, we disagree. What about uh, baptism, my goodness? What a, what a disagreement we have there. But when it comes to the central teachings of the gospel, we're united on the gospel because it's clear. In 1994, what does that mean to be united? In 1994, there was a document that, was, that came out, many of you probably uh, remember it, Evangelicals and Catholics together, where prominent teachers in the church, the Evangelical Church, men of great esteem signed this document. And I was like, wow, wow. Yeah, we can come together on many things to influence the culture. But really, what is the elephant in the room during the Reformation? It was the gospel. In that document it states, as Christ is one, so Christian mission is one. The one mission can and should, sound, should be advanced in diverse ways. Legitimate diversity, however, should not be confused with existing divisions between Christians that observe the one Christ and hinder the one mission. What is the one mission? What is the mission but to take the gospel to the world? R.C. Sproul writes concerning the doctrine of justification by faith alone, which is the double imputation of the righteousness of Christ. He says, this is the truth worth dividing the church. Why? This is the article by which the church stands or fall because it is the article on which we all stand or fall. Now, let's move on to the next point, which is the inspiration of Scripture. Now, there was another attack on Scripture that came from what we call the higher critics in the 18th and 19th century. And they say the Scriptures were written by men, and men can err, they can err, and therefore, not all the things in Scripture are inerrant. The miracles, they can be explained. So the history, they divide the history of Jesus from the truth of God, the scriptures. In response to that, B.B. Warfield from Princeton responded in defending the divine inspiration and inerrancy of the Holy Scriptures. 
He says, every word indicted under the analogous influence of the inspiration was at one and the same time the consciously self-chosen word of the writer and the divinely inspired word of the spirit. What's, what's Warfield saying here? It's not manual dictation. It's compatibilityism. In the word of God, we have the sovereignty of God, but also we have the responsibility of man. The confession of faith says that the volition of the will has not been taken away, but established through secondary causes. In the scriptures, we read that feral that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. We also read that, God, that Pharaoh hardened his heart. How does that, how can that be? Doesn't that sound like a direct contradiction? Well, if God pulls away his grace from any one of us, we will act as our natural fallen natures. That's all he had to do with. He didn't make Pharaoh evil. He was evil because of the fall. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leper his spots? Jeremiah 13, 23. Then also you, can you do good that you are accustomed to do evil? Being reminded of, of what Paul says in the New Testament that no one is good, no, not one. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Evil exists because we live in a fallen world. But the good news is God is overcoming evil for good. To abandon the authority and inspiration of Scripture was to abandon the apostles and Jesus himself. In Psalm 82, Jesus quotes in John 10, 34 and 36, Jesus answered them, is it not written in your law? I said to you, are gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken. Scripture cannot be broken. Do you say to him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? Psalm 82 is talking about God gave the words to the judges and called them gods. The very inspiration of the word of God. And he's saying, you never complained about that. But now you come to me and you, you complain and argue against me when I say I am the son of God, the living word. Now, you know, this whole bunch of debate over higher criticism and neo-orthodoxy and whatever, but I come on the position that John Calvin comes under, and I'll show you in scripture where it talks about this, uh, when it says that scripture bears its own authority. John Calvin writes, let this point therefore stand that those whom the Holy Spirit has inwardly taught truly rest upon scripture, and that scripture indeed is self-authenticated. Hence, it is not right to subject it to proofs and reasoning and the certainty it deserves with us. It attains by the testimony of the Holy Spirit, by, for even if it wins reverence for itself by its own majesty, it seriously affects us only when it's sealed upon our hearts through the Spirit. Was Calvin against evidences? No, 
He's saying those are, those are great additions, tools. But he's saying, hey, even the, even the, even the devils believe, as we read in James 2, and they shudder at the thought. What makes it different? The Holy Spirit seals it in our hearts. He gives us the very faith to not only believe with an assent, but to trust the word of God. Because the word of God is an inerrant, it's trustworthy. Now, I want to go to the garden. Because I think the garden is a place that we can understand how Satan attacked the very words of God himself. He planted man in the garden, and he said, you can eat of all the trees in the garden, just don't eat of this one tree in the middle of the garden. At least you die. Now he said, the serpent, in Genesis 3, 1 through 7, and it's in your handout, um, now the serpent was more crafty than any of the other beasts of the field and that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did not God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruits of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the, the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. Notice here, the first attack. The perspicuity of scripture. The clarity of scripture. Did God really say Eve? Did God really say? Was he clear? And how does Eve respond? The second attack. She responds and she says, Oh no, God said that we should not eat of the midst of the garden. Or touch it. God never said you couldn't touch it. A subtle addition to the word of God. How subtle it is. Eve takes the bait. She adds to the word of God. And then Satan can go in for the juggler. You will not surely die. A direct contradiction to the word of God. And he says, you will be like God. The very sin in the garden was the sin of pride. You will be like God. The precursor to antinomianism, which is anti-law, against law. When we sin, we are all against law. <laughs> antinomianism. The precursor to that is legalism. You see, Eve, you have a wrong view of God. God, he attacks, Satan attacks the generosity of God. God said, you can eat of all of the trees in the garden. Eve, I gave you all the wonderful trees in the garden to eat of. Enjoy. I gave you all the beasts of the field. Enjoy. Take dominion. Multiply. Be fruitful. And what does Satan do? Did God really say that you couldn't enjoy all the things that I have created and given you, Eve? Oh, man, that, you know, God is a killjoy. He's not going to let you enjoy what I have created for you. Attack the generosity of God. Legalism first gives you a wrong view of God. And then what? 
Antinomianism separates us from the very law that he gave us. You will be like God. We see this in the Tower of Babel. What was the Tower of Babel? Anyway, when you think about it, I never really understood that when I read that as a kid or a teenager until I really meditated on it and studied it. The Tower of Babel was the gathering of the nations to make war with God. I will be like, we will make a name for ourselves, it says in Genesis 11. We will be like God. When we are born, we shake our fists in the face of God and says, you will not rule over us. We see this also in Isaiah 14. He talks in Isaiah 14 of the Babylonian king, and and he's referring to the son of the morning. Some commentators say that that's referring to Satan as the first sin of Satan was the sin of pride. He says, I will raise myself above the most high. The sin of pride is our downfall. What is pride but having an independent spirit? An autonomous spirit. Grace. What is that? We read in Invictus, the, the poem from William Ernest Henley, and he says, I thank whatever gods that be, for my unconquerable uncom- soul, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. I'll just lift myself up by my bootstraps. God helps those who help themselves, we hear, not the helpless. This poem inspired millions because why? It caters to our own selfishness, pride. Now application. What's happening here in the garden? What, what, when, I read, when I read the, the, you know, the story growing up, I was like, what is Adam doing? He's just, he's silent. He's just sitting there like a bump on a log. And Eve is interacting with with the serpent, with Satan. She's doing all the talking. She's doing all the leading. See, Adam was failing to lead. Instead of leading in righteousness, what did Adam do? He followed in sin. What is, uh, and we see this in 1 Timothy 2, 12 and 14. Very controversial church in, uh, text in the church today. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived. But the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. You see, what's happening, what Paul is saying is here is that authority, there is authority, a chain of authority that's been given here. And he goes to the garden to say, hey, that narrative that you have in the garden, here's what it means. He gives us a didactic teaching that is clear. That, narr- that gives us the clear teaching of the narrative that we're seeing in the garden. The narrative of leadership. 
that Adam failed to do. Now, I used to always think when I read this that, oh, Adam loved Eve so much and that, you know, if he knew if he ate of that apple, he would be defying the God's law. And he would be totally separated from eternity from Eve. And that he loved Eve so much that he ate. I used to believe that. And then when I came to really study the scripture, I was like, what does it mean to lead? He didn't love her enough to lead. He didn't, have, he didn't love her enough to protect her from the serpent. Richard Phillips wrote a great book. On, it's called the, the Masculine Mandate, and I recommend it to, to everyone to read it. It's just a fabulous book on, on uh, the, the, the work that God has given us and to serve, because it's about servant leadership. Uh, and he writes in his book, uh, the other half of the masculine mandate is found in the word keep. Here the basic meaning is to guard and to protect. This is captured in another common Hebrew word, shamar, which is translated by such English terms as watch, guard, protect, take under custody, exercise care. How are we as, as husbands and fathers to love our wives and our children? It's a self-sacrificial love. We see this clearly in the book of Ruth. Remember the, book, the story of Ruth? Christian preached on it fabulously a few weeks ago. And Boaz, you know, Ruth was, was a foreigner coming to, to, to the land of Israel um, because her husband had died. And um, Boaz uh, says, said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are my redeemer. What did Boaz do? When he noticed Ruth, what did he say to his men? Guard her, protect her. Oh, and by the way, nurture her. Drop grain, because she was gleaning. She was coming behind the, the, the workers and gleaning what she could glean just to survive. And he says, drop some bushels to her and watch over her. And he says to her, don't glean in any other field. Why? Because she could be in danger. So he, his first instinct is, is to protect her and guard her, to show his, his, his care. And she, he falls asleep and she comes and she, she sleeps at his feet and responds, spread your wings over me and protect me. How do, how do, how do we as, as husbands love our wives? That's one of them. <laughs> and Adam didn't do it. We read it on the, on the police cars that go by, serve and protect. Now in Ephesians 5, 24 through 25, it says, Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit their, in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives 
as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. It's a self-sacrificial love. I read, I read articles on the egalitarian approach to leadership and what they go to is an authority that is totally absent from scripture. Christ says that he is the head of church and he loves the church. He gives himself for the church. It's a self-sacrifice love. It's not some chauvinism. And the reasons they make for their egalitarian approach is that, oh, look at all the things that, that, that men have done to women to abuse them. And that's true. They have. My goodness. But that's not the intent of God in leadership. It's to love and to cherish. Now, when you think of antinomianism and legalism, what's the cure? Uh, I went too far. The cure. Sinclair Ferguson writes in The Whole Christ, and I can't say it any better than him. My goodness, Ferguson just, he's so eloquent. <laughs> um, that I have to share it with you. And he says, the considerations give us some clues as to why legalism and antinomianism are, in fact, non-identical twins that emerge from the same womb. Eve's uh, rejection of God's law, antinomianism, was, in fact, the fruit of her distorted view of God, legalism. Legalism can, therefore, be banished only when we see that the real truth about God is that when we glorify him and also come to enjoy him forever and with him enjoy everything that he has given us. To the unbeliever, this is incomprehensible. But to, to us, it's happy first principle. Of the... the I lost my place. Um of the believer's life. Antinomianism then is like legalism is not only a matter of having the wrong view of the law, it's a matter of ultimately having a wrong view of grace and, and therefore having a wrong view of God himself. There is only one genuine cure for legalism. It is the same medicine of the gospel prescribes for the antinomianism. Understanding and tasting union with Christ himself that leads to a new love for and obedience to the law. The very cure for our antinomianism and our legalism is the gospel itself. Now getting on to special revelation. And I gotta move fast. You search, he says to the, the Pharisees in John 5, 39, you search the scriptures because you think in them you, you have eternal life and it is in them that bear witness of me. All of the scriptures point to Christ. Dennis Johnson writes in his book, Him We Proclaim, and he, what he's talking, this book is, is really arguing for is what we call the, the redemptive historical or Christ-centered preaching. And he says, 
The purpose of the Old Testament historical narrative is not to teach moral lessons, but to trace the work of God, the savior of his people whose redeeming presence among them reaches to the climactic expression in Christ's incarnation, the indicative mood, who we are in Christ. Scripture declares God's redemptive action in history precedes the imperative, which specifies the appropriate response. John Calvin writes on redemptive historical preaching in his preface to Pierre Robert Olvalante in 1535, which is a translation of the New Testament. This was, was, was uh, Calvin's words. He says, he, Christ, is Isaac, the beloved son of the father who was often a sacrifice but nevertheless did not succumb to the power of death. He is Jacob, the watchful shepherd who has such great care for his sheep which he guards. He is the good, compassionate brother Joseph who in his glory did not, was not ashamed to acknowledge his brothers however lowly and object their condition. He is the great sacrificer, the bishop, bishop Melchizedek, who has offered an eternal sacrifice once for all. He is the sovereign lawgiver, Moses, who his law on the tablets of our hearts by his spirit. He is the faithful captain in the guard, Joshua, to lead us into the promised land. He is the victorious and noble King David, bringing by his hand all rebellious power to subjection. He is the magnificent magnificent and triumphant King Solomon governing his kingdom in peace and prosperity. All of scripture points to Christ. He is the strong and strong of Solomon who by his death he overwhelmed his enemies. This is what we should be seeking in scripture. This is why the apostle Paul said I've decided to know nothing but Christ and him crucified. Now let's get to the sufficiency of scripture, adding to scripture. In Hebrews 1, 1 through 3, it says, long ago and many times and in many ways, God has spoken to us, our fathers, uh, by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he reported to be heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the very radiance and glory of God the exact imprint of his nature. Long ago, God spoke through the prophets and in dreams and in all these different various ways, but he's saying, now Christ has come. The Old Testament saints looked forward to the cross. And, and we, in the New Testament, we look back to the cross in fulfillment. The book of Hebrews says what? That the, the Old Testament saints look forward to the cross in type and shadow. Why did we have the sacrifices? Because they pointed to Christ. In the garden, we have the very gospel. They call it the proto-evangelium. It's the, the first gospel in the, in, right after the fall. He says what? The seed of the woman shall come and you shall bruise his heel. Christ would come and crush the serpent's head and he would bruise his heel. 
And then they, what they, he takes away their, their self-righteousness of fig leaves. And he covers them with what? Sacrifices. Animal skins. To point forward to the sacrifice to come. The Lamb of God. The very gospel, the very Bible, as Dennis Johnson said, is the enfolding of God's redemptive plan. It's a historical redemptive plan for, to save his people. From Genesis all the way to the book of Revelations. There's not two gospels. There's not seven gospels, as dispensationalists would say. There's one gospel. Now, the sufficient scripture says that we do not add to the scriptures, right? In Proverbs 30, uh, verse 6 says, Do not add to his words, lest you be rebuked and you be found a liar. Sinclair Ferguson writes of John Owen's works on the Holy Spirit. He says, he also faced an unbiblical spirit which stressed the immediacy of the Spirit's work and individual divine interpretation. It downplayed the significance of the scriptures, exalting the so-called Christ within above the Christ of scriptures and the inner light above the light of the word. Owen recognized that this displacement of the scriptures would eventually lead to the abandonment. He that would utter, separate the spirit from the word, has good burn his Bible. Wow, strong words from Owen. We don't separate the word from the spirit. In Deuteronomy 29, 29, we read, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and our children forever, that we may do all that is word in his law. The revealed will of God in scripture. I grew up in the charismatic church, and they were always fascinated with trying to figure out the secret will of God. Man, it's like, it's the secret will of God. Calvin says where God shuts his holy mouth, I will, I will disdain. And I like how R.C. Sproul says it in, in more up-to-date nomenclature. He says, it's a secret will of God because it's none of your business. Luther writes that, you know, of, of the, the speculators of his day, and, and he says that they, they, they want to, to peek at God in the new. They want to they enclose God, as he has revealed him in his son. If you want, he says, come, you, you have to, to, to learn of God and how he has revealed himself in Holy Scripture in the incarnate of Christ. For the very scriptures are the living word of God. But we are always fascinated to try to find out the providence of God. I don't know. But I'll tell you one thing. I do know this. What was the most evil thing that was ever perpetrated on this earth? What evil you can ever think of? What was more evil than the killing of God's own son? But in that, it was the greatest good. God overcame evil. He said by lawless men, they were put to death. That he was put to death, which was what? the foreordained plan of God 
to fulfill the ordained plan of God, he used wicked men to crucify him, to overcome the wickedness of men for the good of those who were redeemed. What a wonderful truth that is. I don't know many of the things of the, of the providence of God and why things happen, but I do know this, God is sovereign and God is good and God is loving and rest in that. Interpretation of scripture. And we're probably going to have to stop there, but I want to go to the illumination of the Holy uh, Spirit and conclude with that. Um, the illumination of, of, of the Holy Spirit is, is important because uh, it, we read in 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are folly to him. And he, does, he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Without the illumination of the Holy Spirit, we will never be persuaded of the truth. Not, we will never have a true living faith. It is the Spirit that seals that truth in our hearts. The Puritans would always pray for the unction of the Holy Spirit before the sermons. And we, would, we do that today. We pray that God might give us the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Unction means anointing of the Holy Spirit. That we may come to what? Understand the word of God. Without the Spirit, we will not acquiesce to it. We have, we're not against evidences. Man, the, the, the confession talks about no, the heavenly of the style. The magnificent of the, of the, the connection of it. There's... There's just wonder. When you look at the scriptures, uh, there's great evidences. The prophecies fulfilled. Wow. Great evidences. But without the Spirit, you will never have a living faith. John Calvin writes uh, in his commentary on Romans 8:16. he writes, But Paul means that the Spirit of God gives us such a testimony that when he is our guide and teacher, our spirit is made assured of the adoption of God. For our mind is of its own self without the preaching and testimony of the Spirit could not convey to us this assurance. There is also here an explanation of the former verse, for when the Spirit testifies to us that we are the children of God, he is at the same time pouring our, into our hearts such a confidence that we venture to call God our Father. W.T. Shed, G. Shedd said, the approbation of the truth is not the love of it. An unbeliever can give me, can stand up here and give you a, a, an exact expression, expository of scripture. Satan knows the scriptures backwards and forth. He knows the truth, but he doesn't trust it. He doesn't love it like we do. I want to end with um, a poem by Dorothy Day in responding to Invictus. She, she writes, out of the light that dazzles me, bright as the sun from pole to pole, I thank the God that I know to be for Christ, the conqueror of my soul. Since he that sways of circumstance, I would not wince nor cry aloud under the rule which men call chance, my head and my joy with joy 
is humbly bowed. Beyond the place of sin and tears, that life with him and his, the aid, that spite the menace of the years, keeps and will keep me unafraid. I have no fear, throw straight the gate. He clears from punishment the scroll. Christ is the master of my fate. Christ is the captain of my soul. That's it. Any, I, th I think that's it. Well, um, about five after, so there's really no question, time for questions, sorry. But if you do have any questions, you come to me and you can uh, ask me in private. Thank you. <laughs>